Hello, welcome to With Bowl and Spoon, a podcast about your personal food evolution. Today, we're here with my friend Chloe. Why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Shelley. Uh, so my name is Chloe Newman, and I have been living in Pittsburgh for um, about 14 years now, uh, and I guess I clearly love it at this point. Um, I've established a food business here called Crustworthy, specializing in sourdough breads and a variety of different baked goods. And I've also started a new enterprise that I'm really excited about. It is a bakery co-op teaching space called Third Space Bakery that is coming soon to Garfield in Pittsburgh. I'm really excited about that too. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And I'm working with two uh, incredible other food people, Erica Bruce and Beth Taylor, who I'm sure will want to speak on this show as well. Yeah, I'm just so excited to be working on this venture with them as a team, especially since Crestworthy has been something I've done for the most part on my own. Uh, It's really a new adventure with so much new inspiration and drive with three people involved. So talk more about Crestworthy. How did you decide to start a bakery? I, I believe you started in 2019. Yeah, that was the first mm-hmm. official year in business. Right before everybody got into sourdough. Yes. So you were like right there ahead of the curve. I was OG <laughs> into sourdough before it became cool. Uh, but no, uh, no no shame on anyone who, who did it over the pandemic. It was the perfect time to explore something like that. Honestly, what got me into sourdough was I've always loved baking, but I never really saw it as something that I would do professionally. And... When I discovered what sourdough was, I think it was at a period in my life where I was really exploring self-sufficiency and different ways of cooking and baking and preserving and fermenting. And sourdough just hit me like a load of bricks. Like, what is this? And why does no one that I know do this? And I found it really hard and frustrating in the beginning. uh, And some days I still do. But eventually I started making bread that I was really excited about. And as I baked more and more of it and shared it with friends, I had people start to ask to pay for it. And eventually it got to the point where I was baking like 12 loaves out of a single home oven a week, which was ridiculous because you can only really bake one, maybe two loaves at a time. At a certain point, I just had to kind of make a decision of like, okay, I'm either going to continue this as a hobby and, you know, not sell it, or I'm going to take this dive and, and see what happens. So I had my sourdough introduction, and that was also at a point in my life where I was becoming more interested in working in food. And I took a job as an assistant pastry chef, sort of out of the blue, without prior training at Gluten-Free Goat Bakery which used to be in Garfield, for those who have been around for a little while. While I was there, I learned a lot about the ins and outs of how to run a small bakery from the production side, as well as front of house and kind of all of the workings of it. And that was what sort of inspired me to say, you know, I think I think I could do this, maybe not like in a storefront right away, but if I start at the farmer's markets and I kind of build myself up, which is how the owner did it as well, I thought maybe I could just see where it goes. And so there came a turning point where it really was like, I I can't keep baking sourdough bread at home while also working here, you know, even as a part-time job. So I really have to just take the leap. I signed up for three farmer's markets, which was an insane amount. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. (laughs) It really was. I was working way too much, but it really helped me Mm. practice baking a lot. um, And it also helped me. Uh, gain a customer base and and I think that really is what made the business successful was just like going as hard as I did in the beginning you know whatever made me do that whether it was the uh the fear of failure or what but um it really pushed the business forward um there were a lot of other lucky factors to that too Uh, for one I just being in the city of Pittsburgh, people are so supportive of these kinds of enterprises, these like small food businesses. Um, And I knew a lot of really wonderful people who were willing to support my business while it was growing. I also, yeah, I got really lucky with the job that I had where I was learning the ins and outs of this small bakery. And then I also worked out of 
what was known as the Bakery Society at the time, which although ultimately didn't stay open for very long, it did provide me with a pretty cheap working space that had a very large oven, it had lots of cooler space. I mean, it had everything that I needed. It wasn't really convenient for me, so I was really away from home for most of that year. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, that really helped me start the business. That and was in Mount Oliver, right? That's right. Yeah, it was in Mount Oliver. And now, actually, I'm really excited. That there's a, a new bakery that just moved in there. Um, I think it's called Brown Bear Bread. I haven't gotten to check them out yet, but I'm really excited to see that that space has actually transformed into a, a neighborhood bakery. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that's back. That's yeah. another thing that I really love about Pittsburgh, too, is that I feel like the baker community here is very supportive of each other. That was something that really helped me out in the beginning, was it didn't feel like I was competing. It just felt like I was trying to find my way. That's great. It's nice to know that our bakers are all embracing each other and supporting each other. I love that. Yeah, that's how it seems to me anyway, so I hope everyone else agrees. What farmer's markets did you start with? I started with the Squirrel Hill Market was my biggest one for sure. Uh, that was a Sunday market. And then I had a Monday East Liberty Market. I did a Wednesday Carrick Market, I think, at first. So I was doing Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, and I think eventually I switched. It's a little hard to remember, but I remember I stopped doing the Carrick Market, and I think maybe I started doing the Lawrenceville Market that year on Tuesdays, or maybe that was the next year. It's kind of a blur. But I know that the following year I went down to two markets, and that was like Bloomfield and Lawrenceville, and that became my mainstay for a while. So you started with three city parks, farmers markets, yeah, and that's then right. jumped off and went to two private markets. That's true. That makes sense. But mm -hmm. I, I do love the Squirrel Hill Market, especially like the weekend crowds are really fun. I, you know, have lived in Squirrel Hill before and just always enjoyed being a part of that community. A lot of people will still ask me whether I would consider going back to the Squirrel Hill Market. It's like, yeah, of course, except I don't have the time. <laughs> I really don't. I've heard a lot of people that it's it's an overwhelming experience selling at the Squirrel Hill Farmer's Market because people just take everything out. Yeah. In 2020, you had a residency? Yeah, yeah, so I've been connected with Chatham since kind of the beginning of my Crustworthy journey. Alice Julier found me somehow, I don't know how, but she found me like way in the beginning, like February 2019 maybe, and ordered some of my stuff for me. I didn't even have like an ordering site set up. It was all my email and kind of ushered me into the Chatham world just as not a student, but as someone who was trying to do something with local grains and, you know, with these kinds of baking techniques. That was kind of how I got connected with the maker in residence program, which I think I was in the second cohort of. That was awesome. That was actually where I first met Erica Bruce. We were both in the same cohort. And I think there were two other folks too who were in that group. So right before or during? the start of pandemic that you guys were doing your residency? Yeah, it was right before and during actually, I think. It was a winter residency. I remember the pandemic hitting and that it affected the end of my residency because there were certain things that I wanted to do that I wasn't able to do in the end. But they still helped me a lot just in terms of providing me with support while I was researching, you know, what's gonna be my next step? Can I build a bakery out of my garage? Which I ended up being able to do and just making connections there too with various people in the industry in that world. Yeah, so it was definitely a helpful thing for me, not just in terms of networking, but in having kind of the time to step back and think about like, what do I want to do next? Because I don't think it's a storefront. I don't think I'm ready for that. I don't think that's my dream, like something about that didn't feel quite right. I was losing the space at the Mount Oliver spot as they were closing and I, I needed another space to work out of if I wanted to continue doing the farmer's markets. So your time with Chatham and the residency gave you a little time to think and, and regroup and some resources, I'm guessing, to figure out your next steps. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So then pandemic. Yeah, so then pandemic. <laughs> so And everybody wanted bread or everybody, you know, was trying to make their own bread, failing and calling you. Exactly. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. When the pandemic first hit, I thought like, okay, well, I guess I just got to change jobs because everyone's making their own bread now. <laughs> but it ended up being the opposite that, you know, people did become interested in sourdough and they tried it at home 
And a lot of people did stick with it. A lot of people even like made their own business out of it. But there were a lot of people who kind of got a taste for sourdough and an appreciation for how much work goes into it and wanted it, you know, especially once they got back to work, they wanted it, but didn't have the time to make it or the patience or whatever it was. Everyone appreciates you so much more than they did before. (laughs) But yeah, so, you know, thankfully Crustworthy was already in place with the pandemic or when the pandemic hit. I was planning on starting my garage bakery I had like already bought an oven at an auction and it was just sitting in my garage and I was starting to figure out contractors and whatnot. And when the pandemic hit in March, you know, it it definitely was shocking, but I just felt kind of invigorated, like, no, I need to do this. No matter what happens, like this just kind of proves to me like I, I need a safe space that I can work and then I can get my products out and I'm just gonna go through with this. And, you know, supply chain, yada, yada, all that stuff happened for sure. I I ran into all those challenges, but thankfully I was able to get the project done within a year. And in part, you know, I was doing as much of the work by myself as I could. I had friends who came and helped me. Yeah, I mean, contractors were able to come and do what I couldn't. So I was able by the next year's farmer's market to be able to provide baked goods that had been made in my own certified space, which was pretty amazing. So at this point, were you still employed at the bakery or were you just doing your own business? I was doing the business in 2019. I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. Like I had my LLC in place, but I was still kind of looking around for where to bake out of, I remember, until about April of that year. And I think it was June of 2019 when I put in my two weeks at the other bakery, when I kind of realized, I mean, I remember there was a moment at that bakery where I was looking at my schedule and at the farmer's markets coming up and the previous pastry chef had also left and the owner was, I think, hoping that I would step up to it. And I was at this fork in the road of, do I do this thing that, you know, would be a a nice job at a place that I like, but also I have this other idea and this thing that I'm really passionate about doing. And so I ended up to take that road. Yeah. That's a big fork in the road. Yeah. And you know, it, it felt bad leaving the other bakery too. But there were, I mean, there was a lot going on there. It wasn't just those two factors. I think I I did make the right decision long term, but it just uh yeah, that was a that was a tough one. I bet. Sounds like it. So your products are sourdough. So we know they've processed out the some of the stuff that people are allergic to as far as gluten goes, which is kinda cool. But what I didn't realize is that most of your products are also vegan. That's true. Yes. Talk <laughs> talk about that. On the subject of food journeys, for sure. I spent many of my years in my 20s following a vegan diet and I learned a lot of baking skills during that time um, on my own while also like on the job working in different restaurants or at the gluten-free bakery learning vegan baking. As I transitioned into Crustworthy. A lot of the vegan baking that I'd been doing at home or on my own time, I decided I wanted to bring into the business. A part of that was because I didn't know where to source some things in a way that I felt was ethical. Things like butter and eggs, I just didn't have those connections. And I didn't feel like I wanted to use those in the bakery unless I did. And another part was, yeah, that I I had training in vegan baking and I knew that there was um, a desire to have that within Pittsburgh, but it became sort of like a, an if you know, you know, kind of thing. Like I wasn't advertising it very heavily from the start. I just, you know, I would put it on the menu so anyone who was looking could see like, hey, these items are vegan. Hey, these items don't contain egg or dairy, but I didn't want Crustworthy to be Crustworthy, the vegan bakery. I wanted it to just offer options for people, but without, yeah, without that being a part of its core identity. That's, yeah, that's not an uncommon thing. Do you know Leona's ice cream sandwiches are lactose-free? I did know that, but I think it's really cool that they, again, they kind of have that information in there. For the people who want it, Mm -hmm. they know to find it, but for everyone else, like, that's the thing, is people have so many preconceived notions of what lactose-free or vegan or, you know, whatever it is, 
that a lot of people will be either hesitant or they, they don't want to commit to something if they think it's going to taste a certain way. Yeah, so I I kind of like that people don't really know, or a lot of people don't know, and they're just, they see a big cookie that they think looks delicious, and that's why they want to try it. And then it is delicious, hopefully. But, yeah, and you're absolutely right. People might just steer away from it if they think it's not for them. You know, if it's vegan, uh, I, I can eat anything, so I'm not going to bother. Yeah, I get everything at the market from folks who come up and say, like, oh, wow, look at these cookies vegan i don't know about that to like people who say oh wow these all look great oh they're vegan oh wow like that's great i really appreciate that yeah so you referred earlier to your phase of self-sufficiency and exploring self-sufficiency was that something that you've always been interested in i wouldn't say always but i definitely hit a point i think a part of it stemmed from exploring a vegan diet and just exploring alternative relationships to food and things that have more of an environmental aspect to them that's what kind of led me in the direction of ultimately like an attempt at homesteading (laughs) well maybe we should back up then so what made you become a vegan it was a transition from being vegetarian before that Um, I think the initial introduction came from my freshman year roommate who was vegetarian she's very persuasive (laughs) but also it was something that I had wanted to do but while I was at home I felt a little weird about making that change in the diet for myself especially when you're having family meals and things so when it was just me feeding myself for the most part it felt like something very easy to do and when I made that change I really enjoyed the benefits of it and felt like I was in line with what I was believing for my diet at the time. And as I dived deeper into that vegetarian rabbit hole, I decided to also make the jump to veganism uh, around the end of college. My relationship with food at that time was definitely changing in some ways for the better and in some for the worse, I will say. In the ways that it was for the better, I think I just started to have a real appreciation for how much food can impact people's relationships to each other, how it can affect people's health, how it can affect people's mindset. And that was sort of what got me interested in things like fermentation, things like processing your own food at home in ways that you can. Not to just see like, what are the differences in flavor, but also like, does this make a difference in how I feel about how I'm contributing to the sustainability of my relationship with food? So talk more about how food impacts people's relationships. I know from my own experience that food has been an important way that I've connected to friends, people that I care about, um, and family especially, I think is where it started. My family celebrated a lot of things with food. I think a lot of families do, but maybe they don't think about it as much. You know, everything from birthdays to Christmas, New Year's. Um, I was also raised in a Jewish household where... All the holidays are celebrated with very specific food items. Um, and I get to bring that into Crestworthy a little bit too, which is really nice. I think even at times when I didn't feel as connected to that religion, I think culturally, like just growing up in that, definitely left an impact on me. You know, being able to mark parts of the year, the seasons, and different celebrations with food became really important to me. My mom also just did a lot of cooking growing up. Um, a lot of cooking and a lot of baking. I just found that I really loved to bake uh, with her and you know I took that with me as an individual outside of you know whenever I went to college and so forth that still stayed as something that I just love to do. I think part of it is very rarely are you baking for just one person. (laughs) You don't bake like a whole tray of brownies just for yourself. Well maybe you do but you know oftentimes you have Uh, all these brownies to share with people or you know to give away or maybe you save it and you you pull it out of the freezer when you have company over or something like that you can cook for just yourself that's pretty easy to do but baking is really something that I think is meant to be scaled and shared you went to school for art how did that come about yeah so initially and I should say that I didn't grow up in Pittsburgh I Grew up in Rhode Island, where I had a lot of wonderful introduction to different kinds of art through um, RISD, you know, the Rhode Island School of Design, amazing school. But I knew that I didn't want to go to school 
practically where I grew up. I just, I really wanted to get out and experience something different. At the end of uh, high school, had these two conflicting desires. I really loved doing art, uh, drawing, painting, and taking part in those kinds of classes, but I also really loved the sciences <laughs> and especially biology, chemistry. So when I was deciding where I would like to go to school, you know, assuming that I could get in, <laughs> Carnegie Mellon definitely stuck out as one of those schools where those are two really strong subjects which I felt was unusual with the other schools that I looked at. And I actually didn't even visit Carnegie Mellon before I applied, but when I got in, then I came to visit and I just like fell in love with the campus, the students, and I think to some degree Pittsburgh itself. So when I came, I was admitted under a BFA program just for art. I was still interested in maybe exploring some kind of like dual degree of science at the time. And I was taking science classes, but I just really loved the studio classes that were offered there. And so I decided to just stick with that in the long run. Yeah, it was really challenging <laughs> for sure. But I, I came out of that program with I would say like some conflicting desires. I, I still wanted to create art, but I think I wasn't really sure how I wanted to do that. I was very into illustration and um, some kinds of printmaking and like, I, I did enjoy making images, but I just didn't know, like something wasn't really clicking for me as far as like, how do I wanna make this a career? <laughs> which I think is something that a lot of graduating art students struggle with. There's not usually anyone coming from like a big company offering you a job right out of art school. So, and there aren't like alternative opportunities for artists like there are in Europe to have like residency programs and that sort of thing. There's few and far between here. It's this capitalist country we have to make money and how are you going to do that as an artist yeah that's totally true i mean it was all about like you have to produce produce and and sell and and market yourself which you know i will say i definitely learned in art school how to market yourself and how to do something for yourself that you enjoy like i i do remember professors telling us you have to make what you're making for yourself um otherwise you are going to become very sad <laughs> and probably not stick with what you're doing and also like when your heart isn't in it it's just not going to be as good so I think that really transferred over to what I'm doing now I do sometimes also like to think of baking as a marriage between art and science too so I, I think that kind of helps absolutely I mean your two favorite things in the world have come together and you're making a product that brings you joy and brings other people joy and they need it for living for life yes <laughs> it's huge yeah for sure you wouldn't have thought when you graduated from cmu right yeah no i definitely wasn't thinking at the time i'm gonna be a baker <laughs> so wild yeah i feel really fortunate and it, you know it yeah it's really interesting to look back on and, and think about like what was in my head at that time you know i like even left and traveled for a year and like when i came back was still just like uncertain of what i was going to do but that was around the time that i was getting into the food I don't know, food scene. I was, you know, I was like busing tables and whatever, but yeah. Was there a lot of food experiences that influenced you when you were traveling? Definitely. I spent a lot of that time in Israel doing a teaching fellowship and the food there, I mean, I still dream of it. Like the hummus and pita on repeat, just so good. But I, I definitely explored a lot of other different kinds of cuisines while I was there. And anytime that I had time off from work, I would go travel to a different city, see what they had. During longer breaks, I would go to different countries. It was much cheaper to travel there, you know, than getting over from the United States. So I did get to explore a lot more overseas. Was that part of school? It wasn't. Actually, I worked in the digital print lab for CMU for a year about after school, but then I decided I was going to take part in this fellowship opportunity, just right time and right thing for me to, to leave and try something completely different. Oh, that's, what a great opportunity though. You have to take those opportunities. Like you said, it's so much more expensive to go from uh, zero here <laughs> yeah. and travel there and do the whole thing on your own. So being over there. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where when I did it as a, I guess I was like 22 at the time, I could see why people would defer a year of school to do something like that. What other countries did you go to? 
Oh, I went to, well, I met up with my parents while I was over there because I was gone for about a year. Um, I met up with them and we traveled some of the Greek islands, which was really cool. We had like a day on either end in Italy. Not enough time to explore Italian cuisine for sure. But I, I do remember some really good meals that we had. And I remember going to Prague for a week with a good friend of mine. And at the end of my trip, I traveled in Berlin for about a week, which was also just like incredible food while I was there. And um, I feel like I'm missing some too, but those were the big ones, I think. Yeah. That's definitely an experience, yeah. The Bakery Society, were you weren't there very long? No, I was only there a year, really. I think the whole thing was only open for maybe two years. I think it was a really great idea to make this shared kitchen space for bakers specifically because that is a huge problem. Um, not just here, like all over the United States, I think for people who want to start a small food business, it's really hard to find an affordable space that can work to your schedule, you know, especially when you're kind of competing for space with other people trying to do the same thing. The Bakery Society was a not very well-known space, but had a lot of opportunity for people who were willing to dedicate that time to their business. Um, there were some other parts of it that were a little hard to manage, you know? People. Yeah, people, you know, like, it, yeah, even... <laughs> people even, are always the flaw in a perfect plan. Yeah, I mean, even in a, a big space, you know, it's, you have to communicate with people about when you're going to be there. You know, there was no, like, overarching management system for when people were going to be using what. So it was really, like, among the bakers, self-managed, which was really interesting. How and many bakers were there? It varied, I think um, I remember working alongside Trina Hicks, who owns Cobbler World. Uh, she and I were probably in there with the most overlap. So we got to know each other's working schedules really well. I would say that we, we communicated pretty well. We worked pretty well next to each other. And it's really exciting to see just like what she's done with her bakery here too in Pittsburgh. She's got, I think she has a couple storefronts now, or at least two, which is amazing. It was not a ton of people working out of there. Um, I think a part of it was just Mount Oliver is, is kind of a tough space to get to. Most people starting food businesses want to stay in the city more. Well, on all the city maps, it's just a hole. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. How do we get to the hole? Can't find it. <laughs> what was your level of involvement with the fermentation festival? I'm curious. I loved the fermentation festival. I loved I miss it so much. And I went to the county fair this year, organized by a lot of the same people, and that was so much fun. It was kind of, it felt like it was kind of hearkening back. Yeah, the fermentation festival I was a part of when Crestworthy was still like very small. And I mean, Crestworthy is small still, but like at its very beginnings when I still didn't really know what I was doing, I would just come and bring bread and like a bunch of different spreads and kind of like hand out samples to people and if people wanted to like buy I would like sell bread by the slice it was so ridiculous <laughs> but people awesome. were into it yeah like it was just a fun place to kind of experiment and like experience with other people yeah a lot of people still remember like that first fermentation festival where you know everyone was like crowded into that space and just kind of milling around and trying different things I would I think absolutely... I only went to the fifth the one that was at spirit oh yeah I don't know where the other four were but I have the poster for the fifth and I remember going to that and just being just it was just so amazing loved it yeah yeah I I loved it too I'm trying to think of where the previous ones were I think the ones I don't think I did all of them because I didn't have crustworthy then but I think all of the ones that I did were also at spirit maybe I yeah, don't know why I hadn't made it to any of the previous ones maybe I just hadn't heard about it but I mean it was an incredible thing to have all those people crammed into that room and just hot and sweaty and we're, you know, chewing up all the, what was that we were chewing? And then we were all spitting it into oh, this yeah, bucket yeah, yeah. to ferment because that's how you, the, the chichu yeah, the, or whatever, the, the yucca or something, whatever you chew, 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 and then you spit it out. I remember that. And this yeah. is like a month before a global pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was kind of perfect. And like, hindsight was like, holy shit, what were we doing? Right, all these microbes just swimming around. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It was great. Yeah, I did also love, I just like, 
remember so well like the brass band and like the costumes and everything yeah it loved just, it it's just a great event yeah it was great. I, yeah, I have fond memories of that. I thought maybe you were part yeah. of the organizing of that, but... Yeah, no, I just... was just an excited vendor. Okay, so you source local ingredients for your baked goods. And the grains that you use, I'm really fascinated with the different grains. Like, you make a brownie out of rye flour, which is amazing, and it's just got such a unique flavor. Plus, also, there's so much chocolate in that. I don't. It's a magical brownie. It's delicious, our listeners haven't haven't tried it please try that it's amazing can you talk a little bit more about the different recipes that you've come up with and how how you've done that because it's brilliant yeah thank you (laughs) I'm I'm glad that you're a brownie lover um that's definitely one of my favorites too with a lot of the recipes that I introduced into the bakery a lot of times it would start with something like you know I'd I'd learn about something like kamut flour and I'd say like oh I really want to make a bread with kamut flour but first I have to learn you know, how does this act with, you know, how is this different from other kinds of wheat that I'm used to using? And so it requires testing. And then I find maybe like the right ratio, if it doesn't work to use it a hundred percent one loaf, which a lot of flours, you can't really do that. Um, or at least you can't do that and have a loaf that either people will want to buy <laughs> because maybe they expect something different out of their bread, or you can't do that because it's too expensive. And a lot of those specialty flours you know, I'd have to charge like 15 or $18 a loaf and I just can't do that. That's sort of the process for me figuring out like how do I, it's a little bit of like recipe experimentation, a little bit of like cost analysis whenever I'm forming a new recipe to bring to the table. But yeah, I mean, I, I love using different kinds of flour, kamut flour, barley flour. Rye is one of my favorites to play with. I use whole rye flour, which has such incredible flavor. I love using it in pastries. Um, it just gives such a good like fudginess because it doesn't really form the same kinds of gluten bonds that wheat does. So that's why I love to use it in the brownie and just get that really fudgy, dark chocolate brownie. Um, so that's why it seems like it has more chocolate in there. Maybe. It, I don't you know, know. They're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, that could be a, a part of it for sure. Um, I love also that I get to make that brownie using like 100% whole grain which is what the rye flour is. And no one knows, or, you know, no one really uh, asks or cares, but it's a fun fact, you know, that, hey, this is a, a whole grain brownie. It doesn't taste like it, but it is. So Unless there you're go. someone like me or Beth Taylor who have an interest in these things. I'm like, oh, well, that's what kind of flour is this? And that's <laughs> true. Yeah, that's true. I definitely get folks who, who ask those questions and I love, I love those people. Yeah. So <laughs> It's food is just such an amazing thing, and ingredients are so unique and interesting. I remember once trying. Have you ever used teff? Yes. Well, not so much with crustworthy. I did try using it before, and I couldn't quite find the right use for it's it. So soft. It it's, is really nice. It's, it doesn't make a crust, so you can't use it for crustworthy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But I'm a huge fan of Ethiopian food, and I love, love, love injera. Oh, do you make that with teff? That I know that that is made with teff flour, but I, I really suck at making injera. I've tried it a few times, and I I've never tried. I just can't get the the texture and the bubblingness right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm missing something. So I am happy to go out and and eat that from my favorite restaurants. But that's a fun a fun use for teff. Yeah. That's ironic because you've got the sourdough and it's essentially a fermented batter, right? That's interesting. Yeah, I should just give it another go. I just, you know, no I pressure. dropped it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't think. Do you have a market for injera? Really? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, another reason why I don't use certain flowers is also because I'm trying to source things as locally as possible. So something like teff would be very difficult to find regionally. And I also try to use all organic grains. So thankfully, Frankfurt Farms offers a huge variety and they will deliver to my doorstep, even like my business doorstep. And whatever they don't mill, you know, they also outsource to other, like a different PA mill called Small Valley Milling, who I use. I just have really, really great options through them. And what about, like, don't want to make you give up trade secrets, but are you able to source, you don't even use eggs or butter or any of that, right? I have started using eggs and butter. So I buy a lot of my eggs at the market, actually. Since I'm not making a ton of products with eggs, I don't usually need that much. 
eggs are kind of a hot commodity at the farmer's market, I've noticed. Like, they go pretty fast. you got to get them in, like, the first hour. Or you got to talk to someone and ask for them to hold them aside for you. It's one of the perks of being a vendor, I guess. So I'll, I'll try to think ahead and get eggs from there. Butter's been a tricky one. I recently, like, reached out to try and find a different butter vendor to just have, like, a little bit more of an, a direct line. Um, and also to get like a higher quality butter. But yeah, I don't, I still don't really use those as much kind of for the same reason that I, I still don't have a really steady hold on sourcing those. But there were some things that I really wanted to make that I, you know, that was kind of holding me back and I was starting to get frustrated that I couldn't make it. Like, yeah. What sort of things are you trying to make? In particular, I really wanted to change my cinnamon roll recipe. I made vegan cinnamon rolls before, and I thought that they were good, but it wasn't the texture that I wanted. I knew that I also wanted them to be sourdough leavened, which I was doing as before as well, but I just, I wanted to do like a sourdough brioche cinnamon roll, which now I serve, and I love it. And the other piece of that too is, when I did the vegan version, I had a, a maple icing, which again, I liked that. It was not the kind of cinnamon roll that I would want though. So I always had a little bit of this like, cognitive dissonance with my cinnamon roll. It sounds so dramatic, but I, I really wanted to have like the perfect cinnamon roll. And now I feel like I really am excited about the cinnamon roll that I have, the sourdough brioche cinnamon roll with cream cheese frosting. Cause I just, I'm sorry, I love the cream cheese frosting. Yeah. So that is my very non-vegan item. I and everything that. else in the kitchen, yeah. <laughs> Whenever folks ask, you know, do you have anything vegan? It's like everything except this one. Or, you know, I also make a scone that uses lard also from the same farmers who I often buy eggs from. And it's, you know, it's local. I've been to their farm. I've met their pigs. Like I know what an amazing operation it is. That is Fallen Aspen Farms. And um, I, yep, I would rather use that than butter that I don't really have a good uh, hold on. And people really love those scones too. So, and it also makes it dairy-free and egg-free. So if folks are looking for allergy reasons, that is an option for them. That's great. So instead of butter, you just went straight to the lard. Straight lard. Yeah. And it works great. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So secrets about how I make scones. That's great. <laughs> there are a lot of different kinds of co-ops. Um, I think folks in Pittsburgh might not be super familiar with all the different kinds. The only co-op that really has like a big public face here is the East End Food Co-op, which is amazing. I love them. But that is considered a consumer co-op. So basically consumers, you know, right, the people shopping there can buy a membership into this co-op. Um, I think it's like a one-time $100 fee. And then you get certain benefits. You support the co-op. You have voting rights in certain ways. So that's what makes that, or at least that's what makes that's the kind of cooperative that I think a lot of people around here are familiar with. But the cooperative element that we're making is a worker-owned co-op. And that essentially means that workers, in my case, myself, Erica, and Beth, for the time being, while we do this as a startup, we are all equal worker owners. So we work for the cooperative, right? Like we're making the stuff, we're doing the stuff, but we also own the business. The customers might not see a lot of the cooperative elements coming through on their end. Like when they come into our bakery, it's gonna look like a bakery. They're gonna have the same kind of interactions as they normally would. Um, we're gonna have a lot of other special stuff too, like our classes and our events. But as far as like what it looks like to the, the customer, they're not going to really notice anything different. What they will know is that they're supporting a cooperative business model, which is a much more fair way to operate under capitalism, in my opinion. <laughs> the worker-owned model provides this democracy on the side of the workers, where people have, you know, one one worker, right? Like one member, one vote. Um, things are talked about openly and uh, I mean there are so many elements to it that I would encourage people to read up upon I don't feel like I should dive too deep right now um, maybe we can save that for our third space episode but um, 
there are a lot of elements that go on behind the scenes that make it really special and make it into a really sustainable community business that people might not see just visiting day to day, but it's an important part of what it will be. It's a cooperative-owned business versus a partnership. It's more of a social entrepreneur venture. Yeah, I would say that's a great way to put it. We are all partners working in this together. We're all putting in lots of work and we're all communicating and we all have equal shares in it. But this model is, um, I think what makes it special is that it also opens the door to people who work with us to also become worker owners in their own way down the line. That is a really valuable piece of a business, I think, is to have the people that you're working with invested in what they're doing, you know, not just in their heart, but also to have like a financial stake, something that can benefit them and something that benefits the business. Yeah, it's a really, really cool model. So I'm imagining that you put out a, or we're hiring, must bring $2,000 investment. <laughs> I think an important piece to it is that People can come and work with our bakery cooperative and not ever have to invest financially in it. They can come into work, do their job, leave and be done. But for those who do want to actually become a worker owner and have that kind of investment and also reap that reward, in most worker owned cooperatives, there's a period of time where folks are, are working just as a worker, right? Not as an owner. And maybe after six months or a year, or it depends on the cooperative, but after a certain amount of time, then they can kind of nominate themselves and say like, hey, I'd really like to be a part of this in a more involved way. And then the other worker owners will work with that worker to see if they're a good fit, to meet the parameters that are required financially and otherwise for them to become a worker owner in the business. So it's not a necessity that everyone who works for Third Space Bakery Co-op becomes a worker owner, but it is a really awesome opportunity. And you can't be an owner without being a worker. Right. I'm betting that's a thing. That's another huge part of it is that the stakeholders are like the people involved in the business. Um, it's not a bakery where the owner is never there and you know they reap all the reward and everyone else works and then the owner gets to make decisions without the workers knowing everyone is involved here, everyone has a say. We aren't always all unanimous on what we do, but we all have to come to consensus on what we're doing together before we move forward. Which is a really hard thing to do. It is, it's gonna be a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I think it's gonna be worth it in the end. It's brilliant. How did the idea of forming a co-op start? Like, How did you and Beth and Eric all meet and, and come up with this idea? From your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> From my perspective, it came as a part of me trying to figure out what the next, next step for Crustworthy would be. Because I was working out of the garage bakery and I was starting to come to another point where I felt like, okay, I know I could continue doing this for some amount of time, just working on my own and by myself in my little garage bakery cave day in, day out. But I'd really like to make this into something bigger and better. I just still didn't feel comfortable being like in a conventional bakery storefront story. I, I didn't want to become like big boss lady. I wanted to work with other people and I wanted things to feel equal, sustainable. And I came across the worker owner cooperative model and just fell in love with it and felt like this has got to be it. I don't see a lot of other businesses around here doing it, but I found a lot of other bakeries in particular following this model and succeeding to great lengths. So I felt like it was something that I wanted to bring here. And I feel like, yeah, it felt like the right fit for Crestworthy. I already knew Erica from Chatham before being in the same cohort in the Maker in Residence program. Um, we had stayed in touch and also uh, we had actually vended together next to each other at one of the winter Bloomfield markets. And we just bonded <laughs> over being cold and, <laughs> and, uh, and weary. I presented to her like, hey, you know, I'm really thinking about what the next steps of my business are going to be. I'd really like to sit down and talk with you. And we ended up talking about it more and I pitched the idea like, you know, I'm interested in opening a cooperative. And it took some time for her to like kind of understand where I was coming from with this and like what a cooperative is. But once she learned what that was, like she was really behind the idea. 
a lot of the values of community and being able to offer classes and you know workplace equality like that all really rang true I think for her and whenever I was telling her about this and how I wanted to teach classes and and have the community be more involved she said that she immediately thought of her friend Beth who I had actually crossed paths with in the past but I didn't really like know her very well I knew her as like another Chatham food connection you know she mentioned Beth and asked if, if she could pull her in and I said you know this sounds like a great person for our project and that's how Beth got involved was through Erica the three of us from the beginning were all really invested like really gung-ho about making this thing work and it's really scary to start something this big with people who, you know, I, I knew, I had known Erica for a long time. I didn't know her very well personally, but I, I think it, you know, from meeting Beth and from knowing Erica, like it was a little bit of like a leap of faith. Like I have a good feeling about these people and I feel like we all have this shared desire to make something really beautiful and like, so not about ego and more about like creating just a wonderful environment to work in so excited for you guys yeah thank you I'm really excited too it's we've put in a lot of hours and it's like really starting to pay off your name third space is you know the third place what is that third space gonna look like yeah I'm glad you bring that up for those who aren't familiar with what third space is we explain it as yeah like that space outside of home and work which are kind of considered your first two spaces that you're spending the most amount of time in um so third space is outside of that yeah it could be a coffee shop or the library some kind of community space or just like outdoor space where you can go and experience something different even if it's just sitting and having a nice pastry or you know just having a moment where you're you're outside of work or outside of like whatever is going on at home it's a place where everybody knows your name. Yes, exactly. It's we'll generally put that on a plaque. <laughs> where you run into people that you see and you're not really friends with necessarily to invite them over for dinner, but you see them and you know them and you'll have a, you might not even know their names, but right. you'll have a conversation. Like the farmer's market. Like the farmer's market. Well, maybe yeah. not for me, but <laughs> I mean, I do get to see right. wonderful Sorry, people. The there, farmer's but... market is a whole different animal for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you're right though. Like the farmer's market for a lot of people is is that third space where you get to go out and just like, yeah, have those connections and in a lot of those spaces, explore creativity or learn a new skill or something like that. So we see third space as embodying that kind of like community place where people can gather. We also really want to push that we are so excited to be teaching classes there. We don't know how often we're going to be able to offer them initially, but we would like to eventually offer up to two classes a week, which would be evening or weekend when people can come and join us um, in this small, but again, community space to learn a new skill. Um, most of these will be cooking and baking related. Down the line, we might offer, you know, bringing in different kinds of makers and things to utilize our space to teach classes but really with a focus on food in the beginning. You know, we wanna be able to host pop-ups and events. Um, people could even rent the space out. You know, there, I think there are a lot of opportunities that a lot of bakeries don't really offer in the way that we're setting up our space where we're just really focusing on making this like a comfortable gathering spot. So it used to be Genghis Cones was the thing. Oh. It was an ice cream shop slash Mongolian food, I think, which honestly sounds amazing, and I kind of wish we were doing that now. But, <laughs> Whoa, change of the business model. Yeah, you know, if, if Third Space doesn't work out, we'll go back to Genghis Cones. So before we took over the building, it was Spork Pit, if anyone is familiar with that building. And it's a really amazing space with this huge patio out front that we have big plans for in the future. I don't know that we're going to get to do that when we first open because we're really trying to move our butts on just getting the interior space working but um, we really have some exciting stuff planned for that big outdoor space um, which will be amazing to use in the summertime and uh, any other months that Pittsburgh will allow. The interior space as of right now I think we're looking at a smaller capacity probably around like 15 to 20 so it's not a huge gathering space, but what we're focusing on is that the kind of gathering space that we're making is one that feels 
comfortable, clean, bright, right? Like it has these huge garage door windows just full of natural light. So even during the dark hours of winter, people can come and smell fresh bread and, you know, have a cup of coffee and enjoy a really nice pastry and take home some bread for dinner and, um, and just have that experience of like warmth. We will also be at the Bloomfield market for the last month in November. I approached the market about kind of transitioning Crossworthy into third space. So it's going to mean that we're offering a lot of the same things still. We're just going to be kind of under a new name and we're going to offer a few new things too. So it'll still be like a lot of the same breads and some of the same pastries, but we'll be, yeah, we'll be making that shift sooner. So you're going to be third space presents Crustworthy. Third space presents, what, what is Erica's business name? Oh, well, uh, so her, mm. her previous business name was Le Beau Gateau. I think we're, we're, it, oh, it's kind of tricky because we're we just shutting them down. I think we're just shutting you're them gonna down. You're going to call Crustworthy yeah. your previous business name. Pretty much. Formerly known as Crustworthy. Yeah. So, um, Erica has already kind of, um, shut down the Bogotel for now and has like been really focusing on That's getting gotta be so up. hard. It That's is gotta be so hard. It's oh a my huge God. ask. It's it's really big and it's really bittersweet. But we really believe in, in what third space is gonna accomplish. And I think what we don't want is for first of all, we don't want people to be confused and think like, oh, Crustworthy is a part of third space. It's like, well no, like Crustworthy has dissolved and has become this bigger, okay. better thing. Yeah, that was it's my confusion. Because like, yeah. I'm thinking all of your entities and you're sort of coming together. Right, and especially using the word cooperative, it can be confusing. It can sound like maybe there are like a few different businesses under this like large hood of a business. But it's it's not. It's really, it's all of us forming this new business together and kind of like closing a chapter and opening a new one. I'm honestly really excited for that because I'm also, you know, as excited as I am to make stuff like the perfect cinnamon roll, which like, yay, check, done for me. I'm really excited to be working with new people and to like have new ideas. Like I'm so bored of my ideas and I just want to do different stuff with people who can make very different things for me and to see where that like fusion begins. So this comes at a perfect time in your creative process where you're ready for new energy to be added to the mix. Yeah, I'm ready for collaboration. I've worked as a solo artist for five years and now I'm ready to just like melt into this new big beautiful thing. I see the complementary lines of baked goods that you provide and Erica provides, but are there certain boundaries that you're having to put in place? Like that's off limits. Don't even, don't even broach that sourdough brioche cinnamon roll. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) I don't think we've really come across that yet. Like the way that we've been, I guess, marketing ourselves to others is that we each kind of embody these different roles and there's going to be so much crossover once we open Wait, is Beth baking? That's the thing, is like, Beth um, has not worked in kitchens the same way that Erica and I have, although she volunteers a ton with the East End Ministry Co-op, providing meals to those in need. She has an incredible, like, culinary background, um, both at home and also through teaching and doing food tours. I mean, she has this incredible knack for like connecting people through food. So she is going to be spearheading our education and events of Third Space, which is such a huge part of it. But she'll also be partaking in like, you know, some of the stuff that happens in the bakery day to day because we're, we're going to need that and because she can do that. Meanwhile, Erica has lots of experience doing pastries she had her own wedding cake business and like makes incredible cakes she also knows how to make bread you know like we have these crossover parts but the way that we've been kind of breaking it down is that yeah beth's sort of like lead management position is with the education events erica is overseeing a lot of the cakes and pastry department and i am overseeing a lot of the bread department and maybe some pastries, but you know, we, we've sort of left that part ambiguous. We don't have it down to a T of like exactly what we're going to be offering because there's so much flexibility there. And I think there's going to be a lot of trial and error to just figure out like, yeah, what, what works best for our 
cohesive menu. So as far as the classes and events, I know you do events and classes now on your own Crestworthy business. What kind of things do people want to learn about? Yeah, um, sourdough bread is a big one for sure. You know, when I've taught classes. Still. Still. Oh my yeah. God. Three I, years after the beginning of pandemic. I know. And still sourdough. is like, how do I? <laughs> people haven't gotten enough, I guess. Yeah, I, I think also some folks tried it over the pandemic and just like couldn't get it. And it really does help to have someone there kind of showing you how to do things and being able to kind of like when you go to a yoga class and they just kind of like tuck your hip a different way or something. You're like, oh, that feels completely different. Like same kind of deal with a sourdough class. So sourdough bread in all of its forms, you know, I've taught a lot of just intro to sourdough classes. I taught a really fun kind of like more advanced bread course last year, sourdough rye, doing like 100% rye loaves, which is a completely different animal. Things like that we'll definitely be doing, but we are going to do a lot more than just bread for sure. I would get burnt out way too fast. And also that's boring. We want to do a lot more kind of like cooking oriented classes. Um, Beth had a really great idea to do sort of like cookbook club, like cooking different recipes from cookbooks and getting to experience those sometimes all you need is that like community dedication and motivation to be able to like just do a recipe and and bring it somewhere and enjoy it and get to try other ones we also are doing a lot of pop-ups in the meantime where we're doing these like demos and classes just different kinds of meals that you can make there's a great class that beth is and Erica have done like cooking from your pantry where it's like all about using staples that you probably already have in your house, but using them in a different way and being able to customize what you're making. Of course, we also wanna do different kinds of pastry classes. Similar to bread, sometimes it's just easier to have someone showing you how to do something having the right ingredients on hand, the right equipment available. So there are lots of possibilities there with um, different kinds of seasonal classes we can teach with with pastry as well. You know, it's fun to be able to do that with your friend or your partner or your dad or, you know, whoever. They make great gifts, you know, these like experiential things and you come away with delicious treats and the experience to do it at home, hopefully. So you have the space and you have the idea, you've got the partners. What's going on now? When does it open? (laughs) When can I buy stuff? When can I visit? So as far as timeline for opening Third Space Bakery, yeah, there's so many factors that go into it where like, if everything goes according to plan, we hope to open by the end of the year, but that is a big if. We are like moving and grooving in terms of getting stuff in the space ready. And we have a huge advantage to that space having been a restaurant prior to us making it into a bakery, just in terms of like plumbing and there's like a huge walk-in cooler there that's already installed and that's amazing, but there's still a lot that we need to put in there to make it work for our space, especially because we want it to be so many things. Like we want it to be a bakery, but then we also want to be able to transform it into like a workshop classroom space and everything needs to be modular and we want it to be cozy, but clean and classy. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Our architect is doing magical things with it, so I, I think we're going to be able to do it, but it's, yeah, it's going to be a lot to do before the end of the year, which is coming up quick. So exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited for you guys. So last thing I want to ask you about is your garage bakery. Yes. Are we above it right now we are yeah we're sitting oh my my... god i'm so excited (laughs) i'll definitely show you it uh yeah we're sitting in my living room in like a ranch style house so the bakery is like on the ground floor it's pretty small all things considered the whole thing like storage equipment and everything is under 500 square feet it works i mean it's it's perfect i will say for like one person whenever i have like another person in there helping me out or like if i'm just showing them the bakery or whatever it does get to be a little bit crowded just because moving around when you have sheet racks and everything, it also gets very hot in there. So in the summertime, I really have to monitor like what time I'm in there. I, I try not to be in there like in the afternoons if I can help it just because it gets to be so hot. But yeah, it, it just exists in my house. I bet in the winter though, you save a lot of money on heat. It's nice in the winter, yeah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, my business model doesn't do a lot of baking in the winter. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, it okay. works for me because then I, I get the winter off for the most part. Yeah. All of that's about to change, of course, with third space. But, yeah. No, it is nice to be in there in the winter, though. It also smells really nice. Fills the house with good smells. Your, your business model is sort of 
flipped. I know. I know. It's going <laughs> to be... Practicality reasons. Yeah. yeah it's going to be weird baking in the winter. I think it'll be beautiful, but it'll be different. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Oh I'm my very excited to get to know you better. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so excited to be talking to you and what an honor to be a part of this. Yeah, and thanks for remembering me at market all these years. Oh my God. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you later. Bye. Hosted by me, Shelley Danko Day. Copy editing by Carolyn Ristow. Details reviewed. Original theme song was written and performed by Paul Labrise and Friends. You can listen to With Bowl and Spoon anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us and send us questions or messages on Facebook and Instagram or on our website, withbowlandspoon.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>